Welcome to Isachtlingwikatl. This is a podcast about poetic thinking, where we share with you a different perspective of the social world. Every episode, we take a topic or a concept, and we use the lens of philosophy, psychology, mythology, and art to analyze the wonderful horrors of the modern world. My name is Andrea Martinez. My name is Andrea Celeste. This is our third and last installment on the topic of death. In the last two episodes, we discussed the scatological elements in our society, the tenatic drive, suicide, and the way we face death as individuals. Today, we will explore the death of others and the different ways we have of confronting it. I'm going to start with a quote by John Didion. John Didion is a writer, an American writer. Um, she, one of her most famous books in the 70s was Slouching Towards Bethlehem. And more, more recently, she regained fame or became quite visible again because she wrote two books. One is The Year of Magical Thinking, which is the one that I'm quoting, and then Blue Nights. And these two books are kind of like a reporting on the process of grief. The, the Year of Magical Thinking is about the death of her husband, John Donne, another writer. And basically, and the next one, Blue Nights, is about the death of her daughter. There was a documentary made about her on Netflix uh, that is called The Center Will Not Hold, where she explores, well, she talks about her books, these two books, and again, kind of talks about her process of grieving. Um, so I'm just going to read a little, a small part from that, from The Year of Magical Thinking. And here it goes. Grief turns out to be a place none of us know until we reach it. We anticipate, we know, that someone close to us could die, but we do not look beyond the few days or weeks that immediately follow such an imagined death. We imagine that the moment to most severely test us will be the funeral, after which this hypothetical healing will take place. We anticipate needing to steal ourselves for a moment. Will I be able to greet people? Will I be able to leave the scene? Will I be able even to get dressed that day? We have no way of knowing that this will not be the issue. We have no way of knowing that the funeral itself will be anodyne, a kind of narcotic regression in which we are wrapped in the care of others and the gravity and meaning of the occasion. Nor can we know ahead of the fact, and here lies the heart of the difference between grief as we imagine it and grief as it is. The unending absence that follows, the void, the very opposite of meaning, the relentless succession of moments during which we will confront the experience of meaninglessness itself. And so this quote is kind of what allows us to open the topic and to put it on the table today because it, kind of, it, it encapsulates everything that we're talking about and that we've talked about also already in terms of meaninglessness and yeah. the creation of meaning and, abs and today of the absence of the other and how we confront the death of somebody close to us in particular. Yeah, and how that affects us, how that, um, yes, gets in the way of our lives and can actually, in the worst case scenario, also mean the death of ourselves in... And also sim symbolically, the, yeah. the part that of us that dies when when one, someone that we love dies, and that so so often we um, 
kind of avoid the the process of grieving, particularly in I feel Western culture. Like as as it as Joan Didion says, we we focus on the funeral, uh, we focus on the tragedy, but we do not really know, and we don't like she says we don't really anticipate what what grief the grief that follows feels like in the daily basis, which in a way also that's the same for most of our human rights. Like uh, the, the wedding is the same. The wedding right will not equal what the daily life will be and one, and one rarely, or, or not one rarely, but that's, that's one of the, of the wise tales that the grandmother will give you in the wedding, you know, just focus on the day to day because it, this it's not it. And regarding the quote that you chose to open with, which I really enjoyed, I would like to um, take from that quote, the part where she says uh, uh, the regression nar narcotic or something like this regarding the funeral specifically. Into the care of others where, where the yeah. others are kind of in charge of handling you because you are not able to handle yourself. And from the quote of John Didion, the part of narcotic regression reminds me of Demeter, the goddess, which I think I have name dropped her in almost every episode. But yet again, uh, her myth and her right uh, comes to mind because she is one of these archetypical mourners. I mean, they also serve archetypically as other images. For instance, she's also a mother. Um, but she is also from the canon of mourners. Demeter, Antigone, Electra, um, the wife of Phocian, uh, Hecuba, all the Trojan women, for instance. But I will start with Demeter because she, as uh, John Didion, uh, mourns her daughter. So part of the process of, of grieving uh, from her, which which for her or for her like dramatic arc means um, transforming herself from a fury to a benign goddess again for humanity. I will explain this. She is infuriated because her uh, daughter has been kidnapped by the god of death. So this means the girl is dead. You know, this, this is why also... Persephone, Persephone's name in the rite, in, 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 this, in the Aleutian mysteries, is also just called the girl, because she represents all girls that have died before their time. Now, what is also interesting, I won't go very much into it, but it is interesting that death rite, that that image of the bride is linked uh, as she can be wedding the death, she can be wedding death, or she can be wedding uh, an actual husband. So mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a dual image to begin with. Uh, anyway, she is infuriated, infuriatingly grieving the loss of her daughter. That the fact that no divine uh, creature will tell her where she is, she uh, enters a castle where she is received with milk and honey, which is a sort of narcotic beverage for furies or the way that you calm furies down. So the way, um, kind of the way that humanity 
unlocked the heart of this goddess that was infuriated and that had decided that nothing was going to grow on earth was by taking care of her. And by taking care of her, they gave her a baby. So to take care of her, they gave her something else to take care of. Mm-hmm. And they gave her a baby, uh, the baby of the family, of this royal family. She nourishes this baby. And as she nourishes this baby, she decides that humanity has, that by that humanity has no fault in this, in her loss. And that instead of, um, of her vengeance falling upon us as well, she's going to teach us her mis- the mystery of the seed and how we, w- and how we can um, learn this, uh, how we can grow, um, well, food and actually ourselves as well. Because in, in these mysteries that we have cited in a couple of other episodes, uh, you are supposed to see the dead girl to see Persephone, to see, and to see her is to see whatever it is you have lost as well. And to cope with that loss and to, you know, come out of the, of the initiatory mysteries as learning how to cope with the loss that there is no lost paradise, which is... Sorry, this myth of uh, Demeter that you mentioned reminds me of a movie that recently came out. I don't know if you watched it, Pieces of a Woman. No. Um, I can't remember the name of the actress, but she's also in The Crown. Uh, Vanessa Kirby. Vanessa Kirby. uh, She plays this, a mother-to-be, a pregnant woman. And her husband in, or, or her partner in the movie is um, Sh- uh, Shia LaBeouf, in famous Shia LaBeouf. A, a brilliant uh, performances by both actors. And the whole story is, is the, the death of the baby. The, the, the baby is born alive and dies within minutes. And like you mentioned in, in the case of the Greek myth, and, and also that's something that is kind of like a given in, in our culture, is that the death of, of, of a child is anti-natural. It's, it's, it's so traumatic because it goes against what you would expect. And so I thought of, of this movie because you said, well, she drinks milk and honey and that's meant to calm her fury. And she comes to this place of like, kind of like acceptance. And so uh, in, the, in the movie, Vanessa Kirby, they file a lawsuit against the midwife, right? And so that's the fury, right? Yeah, and, right. And um, the whole process of the movie is like, you know, part, partially is like finding evidence that like other women have been, have suffered at the hands of this midwife or whatever. And uh, when she goes to the court to when the trial is on, before she goes, she picks up a a photo that she had never seen that was taken of the day of the birth of the child when she's hugging her child. And from then on, she decides that she's going to not press charges anymore. She's not going to continue with the trial. And she goes uh, into the court and says, in the end, this was not the midwife's fault. This just happened. Because shit happens. Yeah, and and in and in that sense, what well, what we could also say is that well, um, she sort of 
matured the process because in fact this is what happens as terrible as child death is even though um the death of a child is terrible is still a possibility mm -hmm. and in that sense well for the in in the site in the development of the psyche uh, for the psychoanalytic theory for instance we could all, we could say that we come to maturity by understanding that we gain by losing, we gain by loss constantly, which is what do we gain? Well, something it's, it depends. And it, and, and, and it's, and it's for us to, to build also this, to find this gain and to acknowledge this gain or. Well, I mean, also like, if you see the way that, that this, well, not necessarily the death of the child, but how death is portrayed even in Disney movies, right? Like, you know, the, the not, the, what is more, like what is part of development is death of the parents, right? So we see this in Bambi when the yeah. mother gets shot and we see this in The Lion King, which, what's the name of the father? Um, um, Mufasa. Mufasa, oh, who's the bad one? Scar. Uh, Scar. And so, yeah, so Fasa dies and like, this is kind of like a threshold, right? For the main characters, both of Bambi and for. Yeah. And Inba. like in, and like the Skywalkers, for instance, in the, in the, in the myth of Star Wars, um, both heroes or uh, hero and heroine, which are twins, have to deal with the grieving, also the loss of the ideas they have of, well, in the case of Luke Skywalker, uh, Anakin Skywalker. You can, so in, in the process of learning that Darth Vader is his father, he has to kill this symbolic image he had made for himself of Anakin and grieve the fact that, you know, that Anakin is alive in Darth Vader and that's what happened. And in that sense, Darth Vader killed Anakin Skywalker. And also he has to lose his love interest, which turns out to be his twin sister, Leia. And well, Demeter is not, um, as I mentioned before, the only archetypical image of the mourner. We also have Antigone, of course, but I would like to mention- Which hopefully we will talk about in one episode about Antigone and the Uncanny. She's one of my favorite oh, yes, in the whole world. Let's. Um, Antigone is a favorite of, of the West, indeed. Anyway, Hecuba, which is, uh, well, the Trojan queen that's been defeated. Hecuba has this terrible myth where in one day she has to sacrifice her daughter, which is the sec the like the mirror sacrifice or the mirroring sacrifice in the uh, Iliad myth. It starts with uh, Iphigenia, um, the daughter of Agamemnon, and it ends with Polyxena, which is this uh, prince, Trojan princess, the daughter of Hecuba, which, well, I won't go into the details, but she has to accept the fact that she will be sacrificed to the ghost of Achilles. And when she is going to uh, bathe the dead corpse of, of her child, she also, the sea washes out the corpse of her last living son or what she thought was her son that was still alive. And she finds out that, no, that the host that had received 
this child killed him in order to favor the Greeks. So this double grief makes her, well, she's called a bitch in, in, in the end of the play. She's called this sea bitch. She becomes a sea bitch out of this power, powerful vengeance. But she convinces the Greeks that she has to, has the authority to kill this host because she is now basically a Greek because she has been taken by the Greeks and the Greeks don't allow this to pass. The host cannot kill, uh, you know, their, their host, their, their guest, I mean. So um, I don't care if you killed my daughter and I hate you for it. You will give me this. You will give me this. Uh, so in that sense, also, this is why she becomes a sea bitch and she doesn't become a more favorous um, god to humanity, for instance, because what she gains continues to be vengeance. And this is something that um, Western civilization is going to uh, make a frown, uh, a frowny face constantly. We shouldn't, we shan't act vengefully upon the other. That is one of our basic principles in terms of, um, well, our civilization. We, we, we don't get to be furies, you know, only furies get to be furies and even them are not, um, well, they don't get to get out of the inferno and see the light. And that's and kind of what like, uh, you know, that continues to be uh, and that Joan Didion also mentions in her book of, uh, you know, th there is this assumption that the process of grief will end up, will end in healing, right? That, that you'll feel terrible for a little bit and uh, you'll go through different stages of grief and then eventually you'll heal. And D Joan Didion mentions... Um, an example when she when she arrives with the ambulance with her with her husband in the ambulance and he's pronounced death in the hospital and as she goes to recognize when you have to recognize the body uh the person in charge uh, like i guess she she the way joan, joan reacts is very mechanic and very uh you know gets like doesn't break down and doesn't she just kind of signs papers like mandy moore in this is us Okay, I haven't watched Jesus. What what does she do? This very mechanical, very like uh, out of out of herself, kind of just yeah. reacting in a in a very mechanical, automatic way. And so when the doctor comes and and asks Joan something about the next the the, the next steps, uh, the other person that was with her with recognizing the body says, "Oh no, she's fine. She's a cool customer." And Joan Didion takes this phrase and says, well, obviously, and then writes, doesn't say anything at the time, but writes about it saying, well, what does it mean not to be a good, cool customer? Does it mean to break down? Does it mean to not accept the, 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 the death? Does it mean, what does it mean? Why do we expect? Why do we, why do we praise the coolness, right? And of oh, this, this has a lot to do with with why, for instance, the Greeks forbade mourning in public with, because it's not cool. It's not cool. You know, mourning, the, 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 the barbaric mourning rites 
are feminizing. That's that's one of their traits. And by feminizing, they mean it's too much. There's too yeah. much feeling. Even even in like, if you think of popular culture, I'm thinking about an episode in particular of Sex and the City, which now it's quite old. Um, and canceled. And canceled, uh, where... Uh, Miranda is like uh, talking to her boss and uh, they're they're arguing about something and Miranda who is like the more masculine like you know power power woman power lawyer and all this and she says and I just want to remind you that when my mother died I was back in the office on Monday and her mother dies oh, like yeah. on the Friday. And and so this like this speaks of like what you know American culture and like you know of our view of okay well she's you're so good, you're so cool, you're so professional that your mom died and you were back in the office on Monday. Yeah actually that's what Hecuba will not do. She will become a sea bitch instead of you know being in the office which means being a slave to the Greeks on Monday. And but this is like a positive trait for us Westerners, which is in terms of this phallocratic masculine patriarchy, which is also um, interesting. This that, uh, well, the cradle of civil of our civilization being the Greeks in many ways, as we've said constantly, uh, genderizes such human processes like mourning. This is why most of, I, I, I only have one uh, example that is male, for instance, and we can discuss how masculine this example is because he is the archetypical image of the poet. It's Orpheus. So, and, and being a poet means that he has this melancholic trait as well, which feminizes him a tad. So mourning is still related to to this um, feminine um, emotion, symbolic yes, yes to, to this feminine uh, symbol that the West has built. So yeah, and for instance, in in the myth of Orpheus, just uh, to to establish a relationship with mourning and music as well, or mourning and poet and mourning and art, uh, what human what. Orpheus gains by the inevitable loss of Eurydice is music because his grief is turned by the act of sublimation, uh, psychoanalysis would say, into art. Mm -hmm. So in, and in that way, he even makes the Furies cry, for instance. That's how he that's how he negotiates with the with the gods of the of the underworld. It's because his music of grief is so beautiful that he must have her back. All right. But then in the end, he doesn't have her back. And maybe because the music was so good. You know, maybe that's because that maybe that's why he looked back. I always say that. In terms of of how the romantics, the you know the romantic poets, male white male romantic poets, um, best fortune would be always that they would lose their love. If they lost their love, then their poetry would be forever sealed by this well by, by the tragedy. Eternal, by the eternal feminine, which is this woman that will never change, 
that was like, well, like Eurydice will always be to Orpheus, you know? And um, mythically, and I would invite our audience to, if they know uh, another image, a male image that would that has this process of grief that doesn't battle with grief because Hercules what he does is that he goes mad he does not deal with grief he's not a mourner you know that's the difference these uh archetypes these mythical char characters that I exemplified are mourners they do grief their loss they don't they don't combat it and talking about the process of grief um I'm just going to fast forward to the 20th century and talk about the woman, unsurprisingly, who establishes the first model of, of grieving for, for the dead, uh, like, a, like a psychological. And she actually, she's the founder of thanatology, right, which is the study of death, not the study of death, but like in particular, what thanatology does is that it, pre it prepares both the, the, um, person in, ter in terminally ill or or that is going to face death but uh, also the relatives before and after the, the death it prepares them for for grieving and, and it kind of offers emotional psychological support and so she's she's the founder elizabeth kubler-ross um one of her most famous books is the death and dying the death the, the dead and die and dying and the one that I'm quoting today is called On Grief and Grieving, which she wrote, which David Kessler is one of her last books. Um, and I bring her up because she's very important in terms of like when we talk about the grieving process in the West, she always comes up. And the stages of grief, just going to tell you, and, and then I'm going to tell you why they're criticized our um, first denial, which if you think about, uh, you know, this mechanic kind of like when you're told somebody's dead oftentimes you just kind of go through the motions and there is no emotional response after later and then there is anger which is the fury that we talked about then there's bargaining which you are kind of negotiating the loss um then depression uh uh which is of course sadness melancholia and then acceptance so um i mean she talks a lot you know, of course, the examples that she gives are when somebody's chronically ill and terminally ill, like cancer, but also sudden deaths. Uh, Elisa Kudero is one of the things that, like, I've been reading her books for many, many years now, I think decades. And she does believe that people have a sense that they will die. And this is also in John Didion's, that, that there is like an unconscious awareness that, yeah, an unconscious awareness that de that the end is coming. And I mean, I find that quite magical. I mean, uh, in, in the dead and dying, there are examples of like sudden deaths, like, uh, you know, car accidents or like, she mm. says like people in some way giving signs. Now, you know, I, I will always- Oh, I understand. I understand. Like what my father says about her, about his death brother, for instance, which is like, he looks back and he says, I can tell now that he's dying didn't come out of nowhere even if it came out of nowhere something like this yeah yeah like that you have like a like an unconscious feeling so for example um john john dunn a few months before he dies says to john didion let's go to paris and then john didion says oh why do we want to go to paris i don't want to go to paris and like that and she and he says well this 
I don't know if she says this might or this will be my last trip to Paris. And then she takes it as blackmail, emotional blackmail. But then it was. So now if you think about it retrospectively, I'm very skeptical about these things because I have like a very positivistic uh, upbringing that Andrea always criticizes. Um, So I'm always like, well, retrospectively, you know, you can make these things fit into your you know, into what you want it to be like. So, yes, maybe he did have an unconscious awareness or whatnot. But, you know, books in like, you know, John Didion, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and other uh, other sources cite these examples that that people kind of have like um, they show signs, Uh show signs at the end is coming. But anyway, I'm just going to quickly go back to the criticism of the strangers of grief. Um, So, I mean, these are like mainstream, widely used and accepted the criticism is well first that they don't happen in that order necessarily that you might have Mm -hmm. you know first anger then acceptance or then depression and second the other criticism is that well like if you say stages that sounds quite passive and like in the west we don't like the word passive so now they're called tasks because you have to actively engage with them which I I am more into the passive argument. I am more into the passive. Yes, I am more barbaric in that sense. So like, yeah, when I read the criticism, I was like tasks. Yeah, I don't like tasks for it. That sounds very like capitalist, like, you know, like this is what you have. Yeah, like you must, you're not being productive enough in your grief. How can you be productive in your grief? Come on. Yeah, and I mean, in this sense, and I will talk about this a little bit more later, uh, there is a, a vast cultural differences between how the West um, processes death and, and how the East does. So there was a study that I was looking at um, for, the, for the podcast that uh, to- uh, looked into the differences between Japanese widows and American widows. And two of the key differences are like American widows uh, first show a lot more emotion within a short period of time after the death. So for the first two months, uh, let's say, for example, they're all in, they're all in and, and Japanese uh, widows don't really show that much emotion. There is no big change. And this also has to do with the idea that the death are not really gone in, 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 for example, Shintoism, and 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 well, Buddhism has also a very different outlook on on death, right? It's like a part of the part of the wheel. Um, and yeah. so and so the Japanese women uh, have less changes in their in their habits, but they are a lot less likely to remarry. Whereas but the American the Americans yeah. are a lot more likely to remarry. Actually, it's a task. Yeah, it's like in, I'm in over some, it. I've some, overcome. Yeah, in I can some love again. spheres, in some spheres, I would say I would dare say of the uh, of some Western spheres, not just America. That's the deal. Like you have to, you're over it. You just get over it, and then and and the way you get over it is you get married, and that's um, well. Again, the the character of that Mandy Moore plays in this hit series called This Is Us, which is also This Is the USA. Um, called Rebecca Pearson, she is a mourner. Mm-hmm. Like the whole thing revolving her character, for instance, has to do with this. And actually all of them and how they take in this piece that died, which is the father. So it, mm-hmm. it's, it's 
it's very patriarchal in many ways that that series and because it it also well the gender roles fall in the perfect order again mm -hmm. this is this the name of the series can be also a, a play of words that this, this is the united states you know yeah. this is us and well it's i mean yes who couldn't who wouldn't mourn Jack Pearson? I mean, when you see that series, that man is perfect. I mean, you, so he must be mourned. Uh, now, that that's interesting because what I just said is that he must be mourned, but because now we, we are very, uh, we do moralize uh, such subjects as death, for instance, and grieving, which has to do with if the death was is or isn't worthy of our grieving, for instance. Yeah. I mean, and, and this in, has in, to do, sorry, um, it has to do with the title of our episode, um, this kind of um, expectation of, you know, that the person who died is, was always great, right? Do not speak ill of the dead. But also, and, and this is like a criticism that I have of um, modern left, um, left-wing woke people is like it, the, the the normal way when we refer to the dead is like rest in peace right so because peace you know like i mean that it's obvious right you're dead you don't no longer have to deal with all this crap yeah. um you're finally uh, at peace you're finally at peace uh and now uh when we have you know the, the like the likes of like you know um uh, important figures or, or or victims, right? Like I'm just thinking in particular of like George Floyd and the, we no longer say rest in peace, but rest in power, which again is very Western. Yeah. Right? It's like, you're going to like, you're going to be powerful in your death, in your death. And like it, it, it I think, you know, obviously there, there is like the message that they want to convey is that of, of like strength and solidarity and all these things. But like, it really doesn't make much sense to me to say rest in power. No, but also like, well, the, um, the queen's husband just died. Prince of, I don't know what, I don't know. Duke of Edinburgh. I just know because I, really I watched care. The Crown because I love Olivia Colman. Okay, what? Oh, I love Olivia Colman. But, well, whatever. Um, but, like, from this same, um, you know, sector of politics, but the death of this duke was also read by this political sector as, okay, people get over it. Like, we are done with your archaic forms, monarchy. And I agree. I agree. I am so well, done with monarchy in many ways. In many ways, I'm done with monarchy. But that doesn't mean that the dude didn't die. Right. And that well, the no, dude the was... Re received like thousands of com of complaints that uh, that weekend because the BBC stopped all uh, uh, th their regular schedule. They stopped everything, right? So BBC One, BBC Two, BBC Three, BBC Four. Like it was like we're just watching all the funeral together. Like they, you know, the, the BBC is like a news major institution, and they just stopped. And so the they British are a monarchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, it, it just shows, right? Like, I mean, yeah, they that's what it means. Like, that's what it means that the UK is the United Kingdom still. Yes, that's what it means that the BBC will go to blacks and make make us all watch the funeral together. And well, I mean, 
I don't live there, so I don't have to deal with that. So whoever doesn't enjoy this will work for the monarchy to be abolished. But still, even if the monarchy is abolished, that doesn't mean that that dude didn't deserve a funeral rite. That's part of the deal that is uh, set in Antigone, for instance. Mm-hmm. Like a- Antigone finds it, like it's the clash between the two laws, right? The law of man and the law of the gods. And the law of the gods means that death is not your own. That you can't own the death of the other. And once the other is dead, then the identity is lost. And now he is the dead. And now he actually, and now actually the dead speaks more to me, the living in general, not because of what the dead was, but because it is dead. He or she is dead now. So now, so the dead and the relationship with the, with the dead body has to spring, according to Antigone, more to the fact that we die not of what he did that is yeah. that is why it's it's it, it it's linked with a superior law and a superior ethic the importance of the right and i just to pre- present a contrast of this um mm-hmm. i'm just going to talk a little bit about go back to taoism uh in china so taoism was very critical of the confucian ethics so and why is this important according to confucius the funeral and the, the, the process of mourning is extremely important. And this has to do with the value uh, of ritual propriety, which is Li in Chinese. Okay. And um, so for Confucius, you I think it's three years of mourning for mourning of a father. And there are like certain... Um, specific rules. Specific no? rules, specific colors, uh, how long, who dresses, how. And... Taoism, and particularly in, in the Chuangzi, there is a very harsh critique of both, you know, this kind of rigid uh, expectations and rules and also uh, an, an, alter- an alternative process of grieving. So I'm going to give two examples. Number one is when Chuangzi's wife died and his, his friend sees him, his friend Huetze, and uh, when he sees Trangsa, Trangsa is like drumming and singing. And Huetze says, what, 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 what are you doing? You're, dr- you're drumming and singing. Uh, you had children with her. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> so he says, um, nothing is wrong. Basically, nothing's wrong with me. Uh, her, her energy has changed. Uh, she had life at some point, and now there's been another change, and, and she's dead. And he says, these changes are to each other as a procession of the four seasons, right? She was going to sleep quietly in a giant bedroom while I, in turn, was wailing and weeping. I took this to show I was incompetent with respect to fate. So I stopped. So he stops crying because you need to accept that this is, this is the Tao. This yeah. is the way of, the, the, the way of, of things. The spirit. And so that's the first one about grieving, which, of course, you know, especially to us Mexicans, right? Like, you're like, what? He did what? <laughs> like, uh, you have, you bring out the dead to eat still. Like, they, like, in, in some places in Mexico, still, they, they dig him, them up and they sit them in the table. 21st century. Yeah. Whatever it is they can find, a hand, uh, the head, whatever. And they will, and 
yes. So yeah. you can't say that to Mexicans, any not or not all, not all. Yeah. So the other example is um, Zigong, uh, who was like a Confucius disciple, sees these these four men, and they uh, and they are singing and they are not performing the funeral rites as they should be in the Confucian way. And 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 he asks them, may I be so bold as to ask, what sort of ritual is this? Singing in the very presence of a corpse. And these two, these two friends um, ask him back, what does this man know of the meaning of ritual? So it's a questioning of, you know, what is it like of the... Of the what is the proper way of grieving? Exactly. Well, yeah, in, in that sense, these Confucian laws on the rights of the dead... They, uh, well, they have a, an analog in the West, a strong analog in the West. For instance, in Albania, um, I believe if, I don't remember if it's, I think it's 1939, the year that they changed their uh, oral laws. They only had oral law. They didn't have a written law. Mm -hmm. So in that way, their law was very similar to the an eye for an eye law. Actually, the law of vengeance was um, uh, was a, a present law until 1939, for instance, which was linked to very specific a very specific way of mourning, which is that um, this the mourners that you which you pay, for instance, we we also have this tradition in in Latin America, particularly in in Mexico, that you pay uh, the plañideras, the mourners, the weepers. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in Albania, it's called to, to cry according to law. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that, that's the law. You must cry the, the dead because the dead is beyond our reach. And, and well, what we have all already said. What I would like to, um, to put as a counterpart, just as uh, in China, you have uh, the Confu Confucius and, and the Tao or the Confucian way and the, and the Taoistic way. Uh, in in the West, it's well, you you we will find this in the beginnings of the Greek tragedy, for instance, uh, and and just the the city state of Athens, where a certain type of grieving is forbidden, mm -hmm. a certain type of grieving that is associated with the feminine again, like with this sea bitch of Hecuba that will um, scar her cheeks with her own hands and tear out their hairs and just wail, wail out. This wailing, this public wailing was uh, considered barbaric, which means from the other law, not the law of Athens and was prohibited and was, it was supplanted by or superseded by um, the, um, the discourse that one gives the dying, the, the epitaph. And in that sense, for instance, Antigone, well, we don't see this feminine traits in her, in her representation of mourning. She just, uh, covers the body, but she does not engage in this other wailing, you know, wailing form that is considered feminine and barbaric. I only say this because it is, um, well, in 
the most modern readings of Antigone, that Antigone is not uh, a barbaric heroine. She's com a complete masculine patriarch figure. And just to comment on this, just sorry, uh, you're talking about the wailing and the barbaric and the feminine. Um, I, one of the things that I found interesting um, when I'm like, I, I did a lot of reading about uh, murders in Mexico and killing of women last year. And um, when women are described, uh, especially the mothers, when the mothers are described as facing the death of, of their daughters, they are often described in their wailing is often described as bestial as animal which i think it's partially why we think of it not just as feminine but as inappropriate because it brings us closer to the animalistic kind of way of being and uh i mean uh, this also of course has to do with it but which is in or which is an origin related to the fem to to the feminine body exactly that is the principal trait that separates that thought for the the most patriarchal thought of western culture which are the greeks mm -hmm. yeah. which is and to this point i would like to bring to the table the enemy music of orpheus you know for the greeks there's not only uh orphic mu music or the music of orpheus but Uh, the music of the sirens mm -hmm. and the music of the sirens is also it has a very black spot on itself and it's the spot of the miasma of being feminine because and the sirens uh, well for the Greeks are they are half a bird half uh, human have women have 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 women body they have breasts and they're like the goddess from the breasts to the head but the rest of their body is bird like this is important because it's it's precisely linked to the voice to the voice of the birds because the birds imitate the birds have this quality that they a mimetic quality And you can, if you if you whistle to the birds, you can have a conversation with birds. If you imitate their whistle, their their tweeting, they will respond. And that mimetic quality is also linked to the Greeks, to the feminine. This is also why uh, Plato sees in uh, the process of acting of the of the actor as something that can be problematic to civilization because he fears that what we see in the poetic uh, in the poetic form of tragedy what we see is this representation of an of a wailing thing because tragedy has to do with grief and has to do with some with someone that is being mourned and it has to do with the barbaric as well with accepting and and acknowledging this uh barbaric base without which we wouldn't have imagined the city-state of Athens. Mm -hmm. This is why uh theater holds this very ambivalent thing for Western culture. And that's why philosophy sometimes praises it and sometimes wants to destroy it. It has to do with this mimetic quality. Mm -hmm. Plato says mimesis, which is the Greek word for imitation or to, which is to represent 
the other that is not there, which is the dead or the whaler, etc., is very feminine. It's beast-like. Birds do it. Sirens do it. Mm-hmm. We mustn't do it. We must. The whalers, they, the whalers, the grief contaminates the body. We can't be ourselves. This is why it is such, also such a, a, a huge difference, the, the music from the sirens and the music from Orpheus, because the sirens, the music comes from their mouth. And Orphic music has to do with the lyre and which is the string music and, yeah. and you know, the whole, which allows you to sit straight and talk and talk, speak. You know, not not go all around like a crazy person drumming and wailing yourself out of your grief. Right. You know, that's or that's what this Pascal Kignard says in his book, Butes. There is where I'm I'm extracting all of this information in terms of this of the combat between these two musics and how they have to do with the process of grief and how grief goes way back where we were beasts. We, we stopped being yeah. beasts by being beasts. And how the like also the, the rites that are um, built around that, you know, the funeral, the wake, the burial there, it's all like, it's meant to help you through the grief, but also takes away this like, you know, the void, right? The void of the absence and then, these bestial barbaric reactions that we could potentially have. And in that way, just to mention one more comparative example between, um, now in terms of similarities rather than differences between Japan and uh, countries like Mexico, for example, or even the United States in terms of the, although there are differences as well, which we talk can talk about later. Um, no, okay, sorry. One more time. Just to use one more comparative example, um, and now in terms of similarities, more so than differences between Japan and the West in terms of these rights, is that just like, for example, in Mexico, we have el novenario. El novenario means that after the person dies, you pray every day for nine days. And you ha- well, pray that's the- a, ca- a Catholic rite. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a Catholic rite, yeah, not, but not it's just, just Mexican. But for example, Ireland is Catholic and nobody does the novenario here. Oh, okay. For example, yeah. So like Mexico, I think, is more ritualistic in these ways. Yes. And also, um, you know, you have to have the mass after the one year. And like, for example, my family, they do every month for the first year and then every year. And this is similar to, yeah, yeah, but my family is like proper proper Mexican Catholic. Um, God bless them. And uh, in Japan, it's similar. And um, uh, they, they have memorial services seven days after the death. Then on the 49th day, the urn is interred. So that's the, the, with the ashes. And then every year, then every three years, then every five years and every seven years and every 13 years. There has to be a ceremony. So it's very specific as well, right? And actually, one of the interesting things about Japan that I didn't know is that uh, during the uh, after the cremation, the family picks up the bones. You, you oh. actually have, and that's, yeah. the first was the similarities, right? But one of the differences that I find quite interesting is that in the West, we're quite removed from the dead. We don't want to see what happens after they're cremated. We don't really want to interact too much with the corpse. Um, but for example, in Japan, 
the family picks up the, the, the bones starting from the, from the feet and moving up to the, to the skull. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting because it really like it really puts a tactile aspect to the confrontation with death. Oh, I'm going to double that up with the wife of Phocian, which is one of the mourners that I uh, quoted at the beginning of the episode, because this woman who's the woman, the widow of a statesman, a Greek statesman of Athens, who is considered a traitor. Well, he's this figure that first is great for Athens and now they hate him for some reason. So they um, kill him by law and the well part of the punishment is that he cannot be buried within the city of Athens. So his ashes, his body and well, the ashes are his burning body and ashes are left just outside in the margins of civilization. And well, there is a, a, a famous painting by Poussin, which is also um, quoted in uh, Morning Becomes the Law of Gillian Rose, which is where I'm extracting this from, where we see this huge city landscape of Athens. And then in the you know, first plane of the, of the painting, we see these two tiny women doing something. And what they're doing is that, well, she might be eating the ashes of her husband. Mm -hmm. What we see because is the, the recovering of the ashes of Phocian. That's the name of the, of the painting. Mm -hmm. So what she's doing is that she, since she cannot have a, a noble grave spot for him, she makes his grave spot her body. Mm -hmm. Wow. And this is, this also is important because, um, in, in both psychoanalysis and in this um, interpretation of how mourning becomes the law, it has to do with giving a moment of this loss to enact itself in some way in your body, to take possession mm -hmm. of your body. And afterwards, you will come... Um, in terms of mourning becomes the law, if I understand it correctly, it has to do with, and after this loosing of myself, I will recover myself, come back to the city state and continue to work in the society. But I must lose myself. Otherwise, all of the other laws within the law will not be, will not be seen as just mm -hmm. because I am not being considered. And in, and in that term, that is one of the main uh, topics for psychoanalysis in terms of grief, that pathological grief, for instance, has um, to do with the fact that in order to come to own yourself and, and to mature within your own self, one must acknowledge what possible losses occur, which you know, they come, uh, they begin with uttering the first word. When we utter the first word, we renounce to motherness, for instance. We must grieve this kind of the, uh, this narcotic state we lived in until now, which is, you will not, con you can't contain me wholly. I can now speak. And that is one of the first process of, of grieving. But if 
uh, the self does not understand this, does not allow the loss to occur, then we are constantly representing this lost object without being able to regain this object in different, uh, in the various ways it can come, it can come up to our, to ourselves in life. And one of these ways in, in this process of mourning becoming the law is that my kin can also become the state kin. Mm-hmm. The rest, I not only my not I do not mourn alone. Everybody mourns. Every family can mourn. We are all, you know, in 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 the end, a web of mourners. You know, mm-hmm. and it becomes like a social, a social thing. Yes, and so poetry is also one of the melancholic ways of grieving our losses and I'm going to read a poem to finish this um, episode by an Irish poet Evan Boland Um, the reason I came across this poem was listening to one of my friends podcasts I'm going to announce two podcasts today the first one is by Ben Colopy he does words that burn it's 15 minutes episodes and he read this poem so if you want an analysis of this poem um look him up words that burn and the poem's called amber it never mattered that there was once a vast grieving trees on their hillsides in their groves weeping a plastic gold dropping through the seasons and centuries to the ground until now on this fine september afternoon from which you are absent i am holding as if my hand could store it, an ornament of amber you once gave me. Reason says this, the dead cannot see the living. The living will never see the dead again. The clean air we need to find each other in is gone forever. Yet, this resin once collected seeds, leaves, and even small feathers as it fell and fell, which now in a sunny atmosphere seem as alive as they ever were as though the past could be present and memory itself, a Baltic honey, a chaffing at the edges of the scene, a showing off of just how much can be kept safe inside a flawed translucence. And I chose this poem also because Andrea Celeste gave me a ring of amber that she brought from Czech Republic. Yeah. Like 15 years ago. So... Anyway, and, uh, it, and it lost and it lost a piece, right? And it lost a piece. And I used to wear it around my neck every day. And now I don't because I don't want it to lose another piece. <laughs> okay, so um, so that's it for today. Uh, one more thing, just to uh, the other second podcast. And this also has to do with the wailing and the birds and the sirens and the relationship between the beasts and uh, and the humans and the human beasts, the animal and the human beasts. So the podcast I wanted to tell you about also is Animalistic by Kat Cray. She does 25, 30-minute episodes on uh, the dynamics. She studies the dynamics, the relations between humans and animals. So if you want to check that out as well. And in our next episode, we're going to have a very special guest. We're going to do our first interview. Yay! And we are done with Dead for now. So hopefully... um, For now. (laughs) <laughs> we can mourn the loss of the trilogy of the death trilogy that we've done and move on to something else. We are in Sochitil in Quicatl. My name is Andrea Celeste. My name is Andrea Martinez and thank you for listening. <laughs>